We do not ordinarily think of farmers as being instigators of war. But religion writer Karen Armstrong, who's well known for her thoughts on religion, begins a 400-page study of religion and violence, which took me two months to read, with the ancient story of Cain and Abel. Cain is the farmer, and he kills his brother Abel, who is a shepherd. This is the first murder, back before Pekev. Now, I don't know about you, but this story has always bothered me because the beginning of the story is that Cain, the farmer, brings his offering to God, and God doesn't like his offering. And then Abel brings his offering to God, and God does like his offering, so Cain goes off and kills his brother. What a weird story. What a weird story. And I always thought, since I was a little kid, why is God causing trouble like this? I thought God was supposed to be a good guy, and he's supposed to be wise, and, and you know, know what to do, and bring peace, and love the little children. Why is God instigating this argument between the two sons? It seems like God is causing the problem. Karen Armstrong, who is a former nun who left the order, became a pretty hardcore atheist for quite a long time. She's also a TED Prize winner and the author of some 20 books on religion, argues that this story, like virtually all ancient stories, needs to be interpreted symbolically if it's going to make any sense. If you try to look at it as a literal story, it's just, it just it's crazy. And I would offer that as advice in general about these ancient stories. What she says this story is about is it describes the shift from a hunter-gatherer society to an agrarian society that took place around 9,000 before the Common Era, when our ancestors learned how to farm. They learned how to systematically plant seeds in the ground, take care of them, and then in harvest time, come and harvest the fruits of the farm and learn to live on those, and to be able to depend upon those, at least within the bounds of weather and all that, for food. Before the beginning of agriculture, the hunter-gatherers lived in small tribes and villages, and for the most part, without intentional farming, they only had enough for subsistence. If someone went out and hunted and killed an animal, or found things in the wood, it was usually just a day-by-day -day or week-by-week -week kind of living. You had to keep going out and trying to find things, and they shared equally pretty much what they found or what they hunted, but there was really no accumulation of wealth during the hunter-gatherer societies. They just had enough, and so they were not really wealthy enough to create armies and stuff like that, and they tended to live in their own separate spots, and they would have occasional skirmishes 
with their neighbors, but basically they lived an egalitarian lifestyle, but a very poor lifestyle, and no one was really wealthy because there was nothing to accumulate. Agriculture changed all that. With agriculture, one could grow more than the village could eat. One could grow more than was necessary to survive. And so, what would you do with the extra food that you grew when there's no gifts in the moment anywhere to deliver it to? You would keep it. And that became wealth. That became the first wealth. And so as that pattern of life developed, we got wealthy people. People who were able to keep the surplus, somehow get power over the community and keep the surplus and keep other people working to generate the surplus but became the owners of the surplus, became wealthy people. And so the concept of wealth was created. So the more grain or other food products that you had stored up, the wealthier you were. And how did you get more produce? You got it by owning more land. So the more land you owned, the more it, you could uh, store up and the more wealth you would have. And so there was a tendency with the beginning of agrarian society around 9000 BCE to have intense competition for land because land was in fact wealth. And it turned out then that the best warriors, the ones who could go out and get the most land by conquering other people or just take, walking in and saying we're taking this land, so if people were strong enough to be able to do that, they became more and more wealthy. So, according to Karen Armstrong, the story of Cain and Abel is about the beginning of the agrarian age, where the farmer kills his brother. And by the way, all the farmers I know are really nice people. This is <laughs> We're looking back into the depths of human history. But symbolically speaking, the agricultural society is rising up to take control of human affairs and it's using violence to do that. Because there would be people who would be tempted to steal other people's land and get more wealth. And they would do it. They would do it. And in the story of Cain and Abel, God, the character God, who represents sort of the big picture point of view, looking at the sweep of history, tells us that life is going to be difficult. This is going to be a difficult way of life. It's going to be painful. It's, it's not going to be great. And so begins the agrarian age, which is an age of conquering armies. It is characterized by conquering armies taking as much land as they can and forcing the inhabitants of these lands, if you're, if you're powerful enough and have a good enough army and good enough warriors, you can take other people's land and force the inhabitants of the lands you conquer to farm the land and give you most of the, of the, uh, the fruits of the earth, which you store up as well. You know, there's also that story in the Bible of uh, Joseph 
and his coat, and he goes and becomes a big shot in Egypt. And in they, Egypt, they have grain stored up. I don't know if you remember that one, but I learned it about 47 times when I was a kid. And Joseph's family has to come and beg for grain because grain is wealth. And if you don't have it, you're poor. So the agrarian age is an age of conquering armies, taking as much land as they can. And so, beginning at that time, we enter upon an age of, of kings and emperors. Alexander the Great, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, the Roman emperors, the Chinese dynasties, the medieval kings, the lords and ladies of Europe, the Arabian caliphs. These are people who take land, large pieces of land, and say, this belongs to me. Come and take it if you can. And then there would be other people who would come and try to take it, right? And then some empires would get bigger and some would get huge and then they would get conquered by someone else. But it all, it all had to do with the control of land. Until, Karen Armstrong says, about the 1700s when we get the Enlightenment philosophers and we get the revolutions in America and France and we get the Industrial Revolution and the Agrarian Age really comes to an end. We enter an Industrial Age. Now, I know that not everyone here watches Downton Abbey. But I know many of you do. The real title of Downton Abbey is The Downfall of the Agrarian Age. That's what Downton Abbey is about. I know you think it's about Lady Mary and Lord Grantham and whether Bates and Anna will go to prison. You think it's about all of that, and that is true. But really, it tells us through the eyes of a family of wealthy landowners how that society is falling apart. Because wealth is no longer going to be just owning land. See, they're classic agrarian society. They're wealthy people, and they're surrounded by poor people, and they own all the land, and the poor people farm the land and give them most of the money. And in return, they provide some basic security and things like that. They're not horrible people. At least I, I don't experience them. as They seem very appealing in many ways. But that is the agrarian society. One person owns the land, Everybody else is poor, and they give the money to the rich people. And then there are wars over this land. And what's happening in Downton Abbey is that they're heading into the industrial age, and wealth is no longer going to be just holding land. It's going to be about uh, factories and financial instruments and all kinds of other stuff. If you all want to talk about Downton Abbey, I'm really up for it later on. So, that's the agrarian age. So where is religion in the agrarian age? Well, it permeates everything. Religion is everywhere in the agrarian age. It's just part of the way things are. In the early societies of the agrarian age, according to Karen Armstrong, there isn't any idea 
of religion. That concept doesn't exist as a separate idea from the rest of life. It's not like, oh, the religion is over there, but we don't go to church, we don't care for it, we'd rather drink coffee. It's not separate from the rest of the world. Religion is woven into everything that happens in the agrarian age. It's a way of giving life meaning, but it's just as much bound up in all of the adventures and misadventures as anything else. And this includes the wars, too. So in the agrarian age, religion participates in all this warfare, even though many of the prophets and leaders are going to hold up ideals of peace and ideals of justice, but they're still going to be caught up in the whole thing that's going on in the agrarian age, which is the competition for land and power. So, for example, in the Hebrew Bible, you get the prophets going to the king and saying to the king, you can't do this, you can't treat the people this way, and, we, and the king listens and probably does. And then if it's King David, for example, he just goes off into war again. So even though we have these ideals lifted up, religion in the agrarian age is caught up in the war and the competition and the power struggle like, and it's not seen as something separate. It's just part of the way life is. Karen Armstrong argues that it is impossible for any state in the agrarian age to be nonviolent. It is not possible to do that. Because if you are nonviolent in the agrarian age, you will be conquered, and then you will cease to exist. That's, that's her argument. Uh, there's a wonderful story about the Buddhist emperor Ashoka. I know Amy has told this story to the kids before. Um, emperor of India, who lived in the third century bef uh, before the Common Era, Ashoka was a very powerful king in India, and he was just like everyone else trying to conquer other people. And after one particular battle in which he conquered a huge other army in their piece of land, uh, he, was, he had a revelation, according to the story, that this, this was a horrible way to live. He was overcome by the sadness and the horror of the violence. And he, uh, according to the legend, became a Buddhist. He had, and he had this revelation, and uh, according to legend, he became one of the great kings of India and was loved and respected by his people and considered a hero, and a hero of religion, actually, for implementing the religious vision, which most, most kings didn't really do. But according to Karen Armstrong, Ashoka realized that he could not have a nonviolent empire. That the very notion of having an empire includes having the means to defend it. And so in a kind of paradoxical kind of way, you have to be a little bit violent at least to have a little bit of peace.
You can't do it. According to this, this uh, analysis of Ashoka's story, you cannot be, according to Karen Armstrong, completely nonviolent in the, in the agrarian age. Because you'll be conquered. Because that's what's going to happen. So he realized he had to keep his army. And he had to keep the army strong. Even though he was trying to do these wonderful things. And it had a really genuine conversion. So strangely enough, it is the agrarian age that gives rise to what we call culture. In other words, fine art, painting, music, theater, all these things that we love to do on Friday and Saturday night that are so uplifting as the music we have in church, it's, it uplifts our spirits. But Karen Armstrong reminds us that only those who have leisure time can pursue the arts. You know, if you work 14 hours a day in the field, you don't go home and practice the violin. You just have your evening meal and go to sleep and get up and do it again. So you have to have people with leisure time to cultivate art and music and literature and write poems and, and compose these uh, wonderful dances. And so it's the leisure class that develops what we call civilization. But the leisure class is only the leisure class because some other classes are doing the work. And you, I think that's pretty clear on Downton Abbey too, if we want to stick with that example. So in a strange kind of paradox, the dinner that is served at Downton Abbey with every fork and every knife in precisely the right position and all these elaborate rules for the serving of the dinner and the beautiful uh, paintings on the walls and the gorgeous sort of castle that they live in is supported not just by the labor of the peasants who are giving most of the produce of their work to, to the rich people, but also the labor of dominated people all over the world who have been uh, colonized by the agrarian culture. I hope you're all enjoying this so far. This is and religion is a part of this. Religion is a part of this culture. Religion gives meaning to life in the agrarian age. It sacralizes life. It makes life not empty but meaningful because it's connected to the sacred in some way. And it puts forth ideals to live by, but it also participates in the violence of the society in general and the inequality of the society. And so in practice, it falls short of its ideals much of the time. Maybe really most of the time. And of course, it is sometimes truly terrible, as in the Crusades and the Inquisition and the sanctioning of violence against conquered natives of lands all around the world. So, were all the wars caused by religion? No. Not all the wars were caused by religion, although it's often bound up in wars. 
But wars have many different causes in our culture. And it's complex in any given case. It's not complex for the Crusades, but it may be complex in, in other situations. The first war that's written about in Western history is the Trojan War, the, the war described by Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Trojan War, according to the story, is about a love triangle. It's about a woman who is married, running off, not clear whether she does it voluntarily or she's taken, but in any event, she couples with another man and the husband says to his Greek brothers and uh, relatives, we've got to go get her back. And so that's how the Trojan War starts. Apparently a sufficient cause for war in a patriarchal world, and the, the agrarian age is a patriarchal world because of this, the power of the warrior. The wars of conquest of Alexander the Great and the emperors of Rome were not particularly about religion. The Roman emperors really didn't care what religion the people practiced. They would let them practice any religion they wanted to, but they had to bow to the Roman gods. And this is what the Jews and Christians often refused to do, by the way. And then that caused uh, a real backlash from Rome. In Christian Europe, religion certainly played a role in some of the wars, and some of them are religious wars, but also many of the wars are simply power struggles among rich people over land that they want. And so they go after each other to conquer their land. By the way, Karen Armstrong says that in these cultures, if you're part of the wealthy society, you don't work. Work is not what you do because there are other people to work. And so what do you do? Well, you can do artistic stuff. You can go hunting or you can be in a war. That's what you do. That's what the wealthy people do. Karen Armstrong argues that religion is always part of the agrarian age reality, and so it's, it's hard to analyze exactly what role it plays in every wartime situation. But it's clear that some of the wars are religious wars, and some of them are not, and some are mixtures. With the coming of the French Revolution and the American Revolution and the philosophy of John Locke and other people, we get the idea, in starting in the 1700s, that religion could be separated out as a different thing. This is the idea of the separation of church and state. So, that is one of the attributes of our age, the idea that religion is not intertwined with everything, but is its own thing. That's called the separation of church and state. So, does that help the situation? Does the role of religion become more obvious or more positive as it is more separated from the state? Maybe things get better in that way of life. Armstrong argues that the state is just as violent when it's not intertwined with religion as it was before when it was intertwined with religion. It doesn't become better. The French Revolution, for example, was in many ways an anti-religion rebellion. And the reign of terror was just as violently out of control as religious wars were before it. Neither of the two great wars of the 20th century, World War I and World War II, were about religion. 
nor the purges of Stalin or Mao's cultural revolution. So her argument is that the secular state can wage war just as violently without any help from religion. It does, it can still do it, and does. She also makes another interesting argument that in the industrial age, the state, the nation, takes on many of the attributes that used to belong to religion. The idea of unswerving loyalty. I will die for my country. I will give my life for my country. It demands that loyalty even unto death. It conducts, the nation states conduct these great pageants that often look strangely like religious ceremonies. It creates sacred objects, like the flag, for example. Do you remember when Obama wouldn't wear his flag for a couple months? See, that's a kind of heresy. That's analogous to heresy. You, that's, to, that's to desecrate the sacred object. So the states create their own sacred objects. One of the states that's in the news right now is North Korea with this uh, uh, issue of whether they tested a hydrogen bomb. You know, we, we get to see pictures of North Korea. Of course, we're, it's all filtered, so I don't, I don't know if it's totally accurate, but we, don't we see these huge pageants of loyalty and treating the leader of that society as if he were a god and having the kind of trappings that in earlier times would be associated with religion, but now have become associated with nations. And so we have a state there, which by the way is officially atheist, where really people are forced to worship their leader as a god. So the mere absence of religion doesn't seem to solve the problem. It hasn't made things hugely better in those industrial age wars that um, have taken place over power and conquering other countries. Of course, now we're involved in a serious violent conflict with a, with a subgroup, a relatively small subgroup of Muslims who are undoubtedly a real threat to us and to the whole world. They represent the worst of what religion has to offer. They really do. They are an example of the worst side of religion, to the extent that they are truly religious. By the way, one of the things she discusses in her book is that uh, the little research that exists seems to indicate that most of the people we call terrorists are not primarily motivated by religion. Uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating avenue that we don't have time to discuss too much today. But they are truly troubling and deeply disturbing in the way that religion is, in a sense, used. And there are deeply troubling elements in all the religions. If we look at religions, we have Martin Luther King, and we have Fred Phelps, the homophobic fundamentalist. We have St. Francis, and then 100 or 200 years later, the Franciscans are involved in the Inquisition. We have 
ISIL, which represents the worst of Islam, and we have someone you may not know, but I do, named Imam Mujahid Malik, who is the outgoing chair of the Parliament of the World's Religions, who I consider a visionary. Next week, we will celebrate religion at its best, I think, when we remember an African-American Baptist minister who at the age of either 26 or 27 became the leader of the civil rights movement in the United States and led this country through a cultural transformation regarding racial equality. And it was basically an organization of uh, Southern ministers, although it broadened out and he was wise enough to bring everyone in, but I would offer that as an example of religion at its best at its absolute best. Karen Armstrong says, religion is not about believing things. It's ethical alchemy. It's about behaving in a way that changes you and gives you intimations of holiness and sacredness. I think she is so right on about this. Religion is not about believing things, although believing things takes place in religion. It is about ethical alchemy. It is about transforming people to behave in ways that are genuinely peaceful and healing. Although it certainly doesn't work that way all the time. With her TED Talk award in 2008, Karen Armstrong won the TED Talk Award in 2008 to found a movement called the Charter uh, of Compassion. And she was joined very quickly by the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and other examples of the best religion has to offer. Her view is that compassion is the human principle that can unite humanity on a common path to ethical renewal, that compassion is that central principle which is found in all the religions in the form of the golden rule, is found in all religions and is also meaningful in non-religious contexts as well. Because there are lots of people in the world who are not religious and they're not probably going to become religious. We have, we have as Amy said, a huge variety of people on this earth, both religious and non-religious. And there needs to be something to unite us for ethical renewal. Karen Armstrong and the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and many, many others believe that compassion is that principle which can cut across all the cultural divides and be meaning to all the people on the earth. If human beings are to survive and thrive on this planet, it will have to be through the cooperation of all people, or at least huge portions of the people, both religious and non-religious. So according to Armstrong and to my friend and colleague, Emily Gill, who had a lovely letter to the journal Star yesterday, in which she said many of these same things, it is not exactly religion that is the problem. It is our human nature, our tendency toward violence. 
which has to do with our physical evolution, I think, and also our cultural evolution. We carry a violent tendency in our brains, in our physiology, which gets expressed in a host of ways. Religion is one of them. But the good news is that we also carry the ability to transcend this violent, selfish dimension. We do. It, it happens all the time. That was what the story was about today. We have the ability to transcend our violent tendencies and experience compassion, which leads to peace. And those abilities are also expressed in religion and in many other ways as well. They're part of us too. And so this is the great challenge before us in our age. Whether we can energize ourselves to bring that better self to the forefront of our lives and the way we live with each other. Can we do that? That is the question before us. Religious leaders throughout the ages have said, yes, we can do that, but religions have fallen short of being able to do that and become susceptible to the same tendencies that we all have. And yet, the exemplary models are there. So, I invite us to be dedicated to do everything we can to walk the path of compassion and help lead our world into a path of peace. This is the urgent need of our time.